morning, if you want to open your Bibles up to the book of Colossians, we'll look together in just a minute at Colossians chapter 2. We live in a world, uh, an entertainment-filled culture. It seems as if these days, uh, if we want to watch something, we have almost limitless options available to us. If you decide you want to watch a movie, for instance, or a, a TV program, you can go to Netflix, you can go to Hulu, uh, Amazon Prime, YouTube. You could, I guess, drive to the actual movie theater, you know, if you wanted to do that. But uh, we have so many entertainment options available to us before we even leave the comfort uh, of our own home. On many of our, our devices, which we talked about last week, thanks to Spotify, Apple Music, you have a catalog of literally millions of songs available to you just immediately. Uh, that's not even taking into account the video gaming industry in this country. Uh, that is a $100 billion industry these days, video games. According to a survey done in 2016, the typical gamer spends over two hours a day playing video games. So if that's like the world that you are in, uh, over two hours a day you're spending playing video games. Thanks to uh, Fortnite, I have a feeling that number is on the rise, actually. Um, and that, you know, in the, in the average American home, the television is still on, even though there was a, a peak about eight or 10 years ago, the TV in the average American home is still on somewhere in the neighborhood of eight hours a day. Now the television, we use, it, it informs us to a certain degree, you know, maybe you've watched the Weather Channel a little bit this weekend or your favorite you know, news channel, but by and large still, the, the primary function of the TV in our homes is to bring about entertainment. And so much of our entertainment takes the form of a story. So much of our entertainment is, is story-driven, and no one capitalizes on this more than Hollywood. You can see this by looking at the top-grossing films of the past year. In 2018, the highest-grossing films, number one on the list, would be a Marvel movie called Black Panther. It has it uh, generated more revenue than any other film this year. It's actually number three on the all-time list of highest grossing films of all time. The second highest grossing film this year is also a Marvel movie, a superhero movie. It's Avengers Infinity War. It's number two for this year, and it's number four all-time. Number three on the list is the Disney Pixar movie The Incredibles 2 which is the follow-up to the 2004 original. It is number three this year. It is the highest grossing animated film of all time. And if you just go on and on down the list of the top 10 highest grossing films this year, you'll find a couple more superhero movies, uh, a Mission Impossible movie, a Star Wars prequel, and a Jurassic Park sequel. And what's funny is you look at all of those, and, and each of those movies exists within what you might call a narrative universe. Uh, they all exist within this, the, the context of this ongoing story that viewers can follow over the course of, of multiple films. And we just say all that to say that stories are the, the stuff of life. And that's why so much of our entertainment tends to be story-driven. Now here's the thing, and believe it or not, our entertainment does far more than just entertain us. Our entertainment actually has the power to form our worldview because a good story has that power. A good story has the power to shape the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the values and the virtues that we hold dear. One author puts it this way. He says, the stories now 
and popular release in our electronic society may not take the form of three-point sermons, but make no mistake, they still preach on screens large and small. And their goal, listen to this, their goal is to capture, keep that word in mind, okay, when we get to Colossians, their goal is to capture our imaginations and thereby to form us. A story has the power to form us. Do you agree with that? I suspect that as a Christian, if you thought about it long enough, you'd say, well, of course a story has the power to form me because as a Christian, we have been formed by the narrative of the scriptures, have we not? The, the story that God tells in the scriptures has the power to form and shape our lives. <laughs> Unlike these stories coming out of Hollywood, we find this to be a true and good story. But it still has the power to form us and to shape us. In fact, we're banking on that. We're counting on that. Good stories have the power to capture our imagination and form us for the better. But here's the real question. What about the stories that aren't good for us? How are those stories shaping us? So in, in this series on the myths that we find, the everyday myths in our culture, we, we come up on this, this concept of entertainment, and it's such a, a huge part of our culture. It's a huge part of our lives. Outside of your rent or your mortgage and food and health care, <laughs> number four on the list of American expenditures is entertainment. So I think it's right for us to begin to ask some hard questions about the entertainment culture that we live in. And if you look at it, you'll find this, that there is a, a myth at work in our relationship with entertainment. And the, the myth is this, that entertainment is morally neutral. I think a lot of us view entertainment in a fairly positive light. We think, you know, the entertainment we consume, it's mostly positive. It'll help us laugh. It'll help us kind of unwind. It'll engage our hearts and our minds. But I think we also operate with this idea that at its worst, entertainment is just kind of morally neutral. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of times we, we'll, we'll kind of say things like this. We'll say, okay, sure, uh, that music, I know it has a lot of obscene language, right? Or we'll say that movie, yeah, you're right, it, it has a lot of, of sexual content and I probably don't need to be watching. Or we'll say, you know, that, that video game, if that's your thing, yeah, it, it has a lot of excessive violence, you know, so, so we'll acknowledge those things, but then, but then what do we say? Well, a lot of times we'll respond and say, but it's just a song, right? Or we'll say, it's just a movie, or it's just a video game. And what we do there is we sort of dismiss that content out of hand, even though we acknowledge at some sort of cognitive level, yeah, this stuff's not really great for me, but we dismiss it because we make this assumption that entertainment's morally neutral by saying, it's just entertainment. So let me ask you, do you think that's a wise practice? Especially for a Christian living in an entertainment-saturated culture. I don't think it is, because I don't think entertainment is always morally neutral. In fact, I think it would be hard-pressed to prove that. I'm of the opinion that, uh, that entertainment is rarely morally neutral. 
Now, some of the stories that we consume in our entertainment can be good and redemptive, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, but some of them aren't. Some of those stories we find to be good and true, but some of them are false and harmful. And the real trick is trying to discern between those two. So now we're back to our big word for this series, and that is discernment. Let's think about, for the next few minutes, how we can exercise good discernment when it comes to our entertainment choices. And that's where we come to Colossians, okay? We looked at this passage a few weeks ago. It is, as I told you then, one of those bedrock foundational texts for this series. But I think it's important to go back and, and look at this one more time this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. You can turn there. We'll spend a little time here in Colossians 2, kind of moving uh, forward and backward. But this is the primary anchor point. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, he says, which depends on these things, on human tradition, and in the NIV at least, it says the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. All right, so just kind of drive down a, a tent peg in your mind right there on that verse, and we'll, we'll camp out and look, uh, like I said, uh, at, at a few places before that and, and after that. Paul is writing here to these, to these believers, and these believers are, are kind of like us in the sense that they are struggling to parse out the truth from the falsehoods. They live in a world full of deception, a, a world full of lies, but they're trying to determine what is true and what is false. And somewhere along the way, after they put their trust in the story of Jesus, okay, somewhere along the way, they also put their trust in a false story. They put their trust in some sort of philosophy, some sort of idea that Paul considers to be dangerous to them and dangerous for their faith. Now, we don't know as much about that story, that philosophy as we might wish. We, we know what Paul has to say about it, but we wish we knew more about what it really was. But the bottom line is this, that we know that this philosophy, according to Paul, it is dangerous, corrosive bad story philosophers in the ancient world were uh celebrities believe it or not <laughs> seems kind of odd to us today we don't think of philosophers in that light but uh but the philosophers in that day they were rock stars and so these philosophers would discuss their ideas on virtually everything from sex to politics to religion uh, education, you name it, nutrition. I mean, like they just would talk about everything and they, and they tried to have a, a comprehensive view of the good life. And those ideas began to catch on. And so people would begin to latch on to those ideas from these philosophers because, again, they're celebrities. And those ideas would be really influential. They actually had the power to form the worldviews of other people in that culture. Now, we do the same thing, but we don't do it with philosophers. We do that with celebrities today. You pick a celebrity who has, you know, a million followers or two million followers on Twitter. And think about how influential they are when they begin to share their views on, again, politics or religion or sex or, you know, on and on down the line. Well, the same thing happens in our culture, but... Back then, they revered the words of these philosophers. And so, at, at some point, these believers have consumed this philosophy, this 
story that was based on, again, it says right there in the text, human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. A few translations, instead of basic principles of this world, they translate it this way, the elemental spirits of the universe. Elemental spirits of the universe. That'd be a great name for a band, right? Elemental spirits of the universe. Like, what does that mean? Well, just hold that thought. We'll, we'll look later down toward the end of Colossians 2 and, and kind of see what Paul has to say about that. But here's the thing. Wherever this story originated, it clearly wasn't morally neutral. It was false, and it was hollow, and it was deceptive, and it was leading the Colossians astray because, and this is like the central thesis of everything we're saying over these next couple of weeks, okay? Because we will never experience true life when we live in a false story. That's why Paul views this as such a threat, because it's just false. This, this teaching, this philosophy, this story, it's wrong. It's not true. It's hollow. It's deceptive. And it doesn't lead to the flourishing life in Christ that God wants for us. And so that's why Paul is so adamant about, like, well, see to it, you don't, you're not taken captive by this false story. Because when you consume that false story, you never find true life. True life isn't found in a fake story. And some of us today, we're struggling to find our way. We're struggling to find real life. And you know why? Because we're living in a false story. Because we've consumed, like the Colossians, some story, some philosophy, some perspective, some worldview that actually sets itself up against Christ. It doesn't depend upon faith in Christ. Instead, it depends upon the way of the world, human tradition, these elemental spirits that we'll get to. So, Paul says to them, look in verse 4 of Colossians 2, he says that he doesn't want them to be deceived by this, by the fine-sounding arguments of this false story. That's Paul kind of planting the seed earlier in chapter 2 before he gets to verse 8. You skip down to verse 15, he says this, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, being God, God made a spectacle of them, of the powers and authorities, by triumphing over them at the cross. In the cross of Jesus Christ, God delivers this crushing blow, this decisive blow to these powers and authorities, these forces at work in the world, propagating the false kinds of stories that the Colossians have believed. And I think that's why some translators prefer that phrase, elemental spirits of the universe, back there in verse 8. Because if you back up and take a look, it seems as if Paul is couching his entire argument in the context of spiritual warfare. The false story that is threatening the Colossians. It is hollow and it is deceptive. Therefore, Paul says, be vigilant lest you be taken captive. Which poses the question, taken captive by whom? And I think the answer is obvious. In Colossians 2, Paul is warning against us being taken captive by those same powers and authorities those elemental spirits in the universe. Paul talks about these same spiritual forces over in Ephesians 6. And what he has to say there helps us with our understanding here 
he says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. So if you put all this together, Paul warns that Christians should be on guard against false stories because the spiritual forces of evil that are alive in our world can use them to take us captive. And to an outsider to the story of God, that may sound just crazy. <laughs> that probably, to some of you today, that just sounds bananas. That sounds like, what? Are you, are you in our, there are stories that can be used to, to pull us away from God and lead us astray. It's just entertainment. Like, what are you trying? I know some of you, that's probably like the inner struggle. According to the word of God, yes, there are these stories at work depend upon human tradition and forces other than you and me rather than on Jesus. So see to it, he says, that you're not taken captive because in this world there are good and true stories and in this world there are false and deceptive stories as well. One example of a good story, at the peak of his, uh, his career as an apologist for Christianity, C.S. Lewis took an odd career turn. He decided he wanted to write a series of children's books. And he explained his reasoning this way, and I want you to see his own words. He says, I saw how stories of this kind, these children's stories, could actually steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God? And he says the chief reason was that one was told one ought to feel a certain thing toward God. He says an obligation can always freeze your feelings. But then he says this, suppose that you could cast all of those things, all of those things meaning all of what he had heard about God and Christ. If you could cast all of that into this imaginary world and you could strip those things of their stained glass and Sunday school association, one could make them, for the first time, for some, appear in their real potency. But could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? That was Lewis's rationale for writing children's literature. He wanted to engage the imagination more fully. And his plan certainly worked. The Chronicles of Narnia went on to become an international phenomenon. If you've read those books or maybe even seen some of the films, you'll, you'll know that they don't, they're not overtly Christian per se, but what Lewis does is he takes great Christian themes, themes from the scriptures and weaves them into the form of a story, so much so that the hero of the story is this lion whose sacrifice actually renews the world. Lewis understood that story has a unique way of getting to the human heart. Chronicles of Narnia is, is an example of a good story, a redemptive story. In, in many ways, it's simply an echo of the story that God has been trying to tell in the world all along. In fact, if you think about it, some of our most beloved stories, some of our most well-known stories actually borrow from and echo concepts from the story of God. You ever wonder, why do so many of our stories why do so many of our movies feature a hero 
who's willing to sacrifice himself or sacrifice herself in order to rescue a world from the forces of evil. That is kind of like, change the particulars, change the setting, but at the heart of it, that, that is the story being told in so many of our stories. Why is that? Why do those stories resonate with us so deeply? Because we can't find another way to kill a couple of hours on a Friday night? Or is it because that story speaks to the deep longing of our souls? To be liberated from the bondage of evil and to find real life. You know, the basic plot of virtually every Star Wars movie is the same. It revolves around a poor peasant who rises up from a nowhere place to bring salvation and deliverance from evil. That, in a nutshell, is Star Wars. I wonder how George Lucas and J.J. Abrams came up with such an idea. Tatooine or Jakku or Nazareth. You change the places, but it is the same general template. Those stories are essentially the same. Have you ever noticed that Cinderella is basically a story that teaches that those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled? Man, I just wish somebody else had said that first, right? The highest grossing film of all time is Avatar. It was made in 2009, I think, by James Cameron. And the, the general plot is this. The main character travels to a faraway world, and he literally becomes one of the natives in order to deliver them from destruction. And that movie has made more money than any movie ever. And it is basically the same story we read in the Gospels about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Why is that movie so popular? Is it because we can't find anything else to do with our money? Or is it because it speaks to the longing of our souls? Years ago, I took our youngest son, Jackson, to see Spider-Man. We walked out of the movie theater, and Jackson said, Dad, why doesn't Spider-Man die in the end? I said, because that would be a terrible movie, son. No one wants to see that. Why, why would you ask? What he's really asking is, why do the good guys always win? Why do the good guys always win? Because that's our deep longing, is it not? And what we hope for more than anything is that good will be victorious, that evil won't have the last word. Brothers and sisters, that's the biblical hope. So what if all these good and true elements in our favorite stories are just seeds that prepare our hearts for the Gospels, prepare our hearts for the, the Gospel, the good news? So discernment requires that we acknowledge that. We acknowledge there are some very good stories out there, or at the very least, there are some good elements of some of our favorite stories, and so for that, we ought to be really thankful. But we also have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge that our entertainment culture seeks to tell some stories that, that stand in opposition to the Word of God, that, that actually, actually have some of these elements in here that are are not good for us that are dangerous and that's and that's the part we don't want to hear but that's the real trick 
trying to discern those stories that are good for us and those stories that aren't. So one example, and some of you really aren't going to like this, okay, I'll go ahead and tell you. One example of this, though, would be the themes that, uh, this theme that shows up in much of our entertainment, and it's the theme that ultimate fulfillment is found through romantic love, okay? That ultimate fulfillment is found through romantic love. You think of Tom Cruise saying to Renee Zellweger, you complete me, right? You complete me, he says. And he's so earnest, and he's looking at her, and he's pleading, you know. And they've been through this whole, you know, story, but he gets to this point where he realizes that he's incomplete without her, that his life has no meaning without her. And so there's this concept that basically every romantic movie centers around. This idea that, that you have this soulmate, and it is your life's quest to go out and to seek them out. Because without him or without her, you're lost. You're incomplete until you find that one that matches perfectly. And I'm here to tell you that, that idea of a soulmate is not just a myth. It is a dangerous myth. And it is fed to us by Hallmark and the entertainment culture. Again, I know some of you think I'm crazy. What is so wrong with this? I mean, look at him, right? How could you say no to that? But I'm telling you, it's a myth. According to a study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, people tend to think about love in, in one of two ways. And, and it just pertains to, to this. So they either think of love as this perfect unity, okay, between two halves that were separated, you know, at some point, and the goal is to, like, come back together, find that one who matches you like no other, okay? Or to think about love as a journey with a lot of ups and downs. To put it differently, um, some believe in love as destiny. You're destined to meet your soulmate. Or you can think of love as growth. Hey, we're on this journey together and we're going to grow closer together and no matter what, through the ups and downs, I'm going to be here even when I don't feel like being here. I'm going to be here. And in the same study, they actually demonstrated that believing in a soulmate can actually be detrimental to your relationship. They said that people who believe in romantic destiny or soulmates primarily look for positive emotional reactions. They look for initial compatibility with a partner. Um, okay, yeah, you, you believe that people either click or they don't. So if you don't click with somebody, you know, you move on. But if you have that initial sort of spark, uh, maybe that means... Maybe that means we're compatible. Maybe that means you're my soulmate. Maybe that means you're the one, right? You have some friends who've had like 19 the ones, you know? Well, that's what happens. You know, you're searching for like the one. And so when it first happens, you're like intensely passionate. When it's good in the beginning, it's really good. And you're committed and you're all in, right? Because I found her, because I found him. I found the one. I'm complete until 
until some turbulence in the relationship, until, until you, you hit a point where things just aren't quite great. According to the study, what tends to happen is that when problems show up, those who believe in soulmates often don't cope well. In fact, they leave the relationship because things no longer feel blissful. In other words, a belief that soulmates should be ideally compatible motivates individuals to just give up when things go wrong. They pull up anchor and set off on another quest looking for their true match. And as a result, their relationships tend to be intense but short, often with a higher number of quick romances and one-night stands. The idea that one romantic relationship is ever going to complete you is a myth. It's actually really unfair to your partner. Think about that. It is so unfair and unrealistic to put that upon your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You will never be completed by any imperfect person. You won't. And I'm telling you, it is, it is dangerous and it is unfair and it is unrealistic to put that expectation upon someone else. On top of that, the whole concept of a soulmate, the word, the etymology, if you dig down deep enough, goes all the way back to like Egyptian gods. Egyptian theology, they thought that the gods created in pairs. And that that you did something in your former way of life that upset the gods, so they split you from your soulmate and cast you off into the earth, destined to roam around here bumping into others until you finally find the one, as if the gods get some sort of sick amusement out of that. How far is that from the biblical story? You will never be complete at the soul level until you acknowledge the one who died to make your soul whole. And that is as close as you're ever going to come to a soulmate. Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that is a word of good news. And this is good news today in an entertainment culture, just as surely as it was good news 2,000 years ago on the day he spoke those words. And Jesus has the last word here today. He's come so that we might have life. There are forces at work seeking to deny us that life. There are forces at work seeking to lead us not into life, but into death. But praise God, we gather today in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, who promises to bring real and true life. And that's a good story you can believe in. We're about to stand together and sing. We do this every Sunday, but in case maybe you don't know what this is about, this is a, an opportunity for us to all respond together. At the very least, we respond in song. <laughs> we respond by singing these words of praise to the Lord. But today is also an opportunity for any of us to respond, and you can do that in so many different ways. If you need to respond and speak to one of our shepherds, you'll see them positioned in different places throughout the room. You can seek them out privately. You can walk down the aisle and talk to one of them up front here. We can pray for you publicly. We can pray for you privately. 
Today, maybe, maybe you need to join your story to the story of Jesus and find this life that he's talking about. Maybe you want to learn more about that. It's one of our favorite things to do, to talk to people about Jesus. If that's something that we can help with, we invite you to come here. We invite you to walk down in just a moment and to share whatever is on your heart. I want us to pray before we do that. And I want us to thank God for this word that we hear, this word of life from Jesus. And we'll stand together and we'll sing. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, Lord God, you're good. And your love endures forever. Lord, today I pray that you would make us mindful, make us aware of the power of story. Father, I pray that, pray that today we would begin to loosen that grip that those false stories have on our hearts, God. And Lord, there's so many different applications. I scarce, scarcely even want to begin mentioning them, Lord, but there are so many false stories in our culture and in our world, Lord. Help us to repent of those. Help us to turn from those. God, more than anything, help us to cling to the good and true story that we, that we see and hear through the words of life coming from your son. Lord God, I pray for this time that you would be crowned with the adoration and the praise that you deserve. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.